0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Women at Work on Business Radio.
0: Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our full catalog of past shows are available wherever you get your podcasts. Just search on Laura Zarrow and Women at Work to find us. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SXM Business and at Laura Zarrow to share what's on your mind. What's on my mind this week? Change whether it's the promise of a new year, the truly appalling news that women accounted for 100% of the 140,000 jobs shed by the US economy in December, or how shall I put it, how desperately we need the kind of pro-social, diplomatic leadership that women bring in times of crisis. And I'm thinking about what we can each do to better position ourselves and one another for that kind of impact and success, which is why I'm so excited to have today's guest on the show. Claire Wasserman is the founder of Ladies Get Paid, a career development platform, and she's also the author of a really great new book called Ladies Get Paid, The Ultimate Guide to Breaking Barriers owning your worth, and taking command of your career. For those of you who aren't familiar with Claire, she's traveled the country teaching thousands of women how to negotiate millions of dollars in raises, start businesses, and advocate for themselves in the workplace. She was named one of Entrepreneur Magazine's 100 Most Powerful Women for her work inspiring a new generation of female leaders, and she's the producer and host of John Hancock's podcast, Friends Who Talk About Money. So with that, Claire, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much for having me here. We really are excited. I have a lot of questions for you today. The book that you wrote really covers a whole gamut of things that I think we need at all stages of our career, and especially when we're in its earlier stages and we're starting out and trying to navigate our way. When I think about starting out, though, you began the book with a conversation about the concept of worth, both. Financial worth and self esteem. Talk to me about why you started there and what the connection is between those two things.
1: Sure, sure. So uh, I have to admit something I never considered myself a feminist before. Uh, I had no idea, I think, what it meant, just a total misconception thought that, well, my mother was the third class of women in college. You know, she figured it all out. Workplace is a meritocracy. It wasn't until I had somewhat of a sexist experience that I realized wow, I am so naive. And I began to do research, research around women and the wage gap. I really didn't know what it was. I mean, this was a little over five years ago. People weren't talking about it as much. And a year of feeling totally depressed as I read more and more statistics about the leadership gap, uh, the funding gap, the investment gap. I mean, the gaps continue. Mm -hmm. And a friend Came to me one day and she said, You know what, Claire, I'm realizing that I'm just not charging as much as men. She was a freelance art director. And for her, you know, it wasn't so much a wage gap because of, you know, some sort of discrimination or sexism, it was just a lack of information. And that's when I had an aha moment, which was if I could bring women together to talk about money, really because of what money represents, right? It's power, it's worth, it's value, then maybe I could figure out what to do. And plus, these were conversations I wasn't having in my life. Uh, I never negotiated my salary. And I got 100 women together in a small New York apartment. And it was open forum. I just simply said to the room, tell me about money and its place in your life. And of course, the conversation was much bigger than sort of the dollars in our pockets. And that was how Ladies Get
0: Paid began. So Claire, there's a lot of pieces of that that I find fascinating and important. So one, if I got it right, was that you were part of a generation that grew up with moms who went to work, who had fought certain battles, and presumed that the fight was over. And so you went into the workplace, kind of disarmed, thinking you needed to go to work and be good at work, but not realizing that there was this other set of systemic problems going on. Am I hearing you right in that?
1: Absolutely. And that, you know, that's something that is privilege uh, that I had never felt explicitly discriminated against. I mean, when I started to reflect on, you know, various experiences at work, yes, there were times where I wasn't taken seriously or I was objectified or, you know, but I, I brushed them off. I didn't see them as something that was larger or systemic, especially because when I graduated college, listen, women were 60% of my graduating class. I just didn't realize that once you get towards middle management, you know, things start to look a little bit different.
0: Um, so then the other thing that you shared in that story that I found find noteworthy, it's that it was When you saw the data that this started to, the pieces started to come together for you, that there was a message in the numbers.
1: Yeah. I mean, you can't really deny numbers when they're as bad as, you know, the fact that Hispanic (laughs) women make 55 cents to the dollar. I mean, sort of argue what you will about the existence of the wage gap. But when you read that, you know what, as you break down the wage gap by gender, ethnicity, where you live, if you are married or not. I mean, you're getting into stats that say, you know, black women are making closer to 63 cents to the dollar. It's not the 78 or 81 cents to the dollar. That is an aggregate. Mm -hmm. And as you begin to dig deeper and deeper and deeper, you realize how much worse it was than you ever thought. And you basically have two choices. You can ignore it and say, well, you know what? That's not my situation or I'm too overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. Or you can do something about it, which... Is probably harder than not doing something. But at least for me, I'm able to kind of channel my anger and my frustration into something productive.
0: Okay. So along those lines, then you, you, as the story goes, you started to bring women together to talk about these things and to talk about money. And I have to give a nod to Melanie Katzman, my former co-host on Women at Work. And she had shared with me one day, she goes, Laura, why is it we will talk with each other as women about anything, about sex, about our weight. In fact, we can tell you how many calories we ate today, but we never ever talk about money with each other. And this is true, you're seeing it's not just for those of us who are in middle age now. This is something that I think crosses kind of all kinds of age barriers. And you were seeing this with the young women you were talking to as well, yes?
1: Things have changed. I I do want to say, I mean, I started Ladies Get Paid in 2016. The way that our conversations looked before the 2016 election,
0: things Mm -hmm. changed.
1: And then things have changed even since then. I'm seeing a lot more women uh, open and confident to talk not just about money, but also about struggles that they're having. You know, recognizing that just because they're not getting promoted or just because they aren't getting the raise, that that doesn't necessarily have to be indicative of their value. right? Again, this could be systemic. This could be because of larger forces at play and not because they're not good at their job. That being said, there's also this feeling of, well, if I talk about money, not only is it maybe rude, but will I seem greedy? Should I be grateful for what I'm given? I mean, the way that we're all socialized, if you talk about money, you will realize how deeply entrenched the messages are that we as women
0: receive. And this is part of why the title of the book isn't Women Get Paid, But Ladies Get Paid.
1: Yeah, that's my sassy, you know, it it wasn't (laughs) about girls, you know, we've matured. Women, you know, also felt maybe too seriously. I wanted a bit of tongue in cheek. Uh, also because of, you know, the image that it sort of conjures up here, right? Ladies, polite, white yes. gloves, you know, and, and listen, at the end of the day, you know, the trademark was open, the URL existed, <laughs> the social handles existed. I mean, let, let's be real here. I mean, that was actually probably the deciding factor.
0: <laughs> Look, I love the candor and also the reminder that when we're launching new things like that, we have to think about all those components. But I also found some meaning there that I want to explore in a second. So, Yes. With a note too, it was a very practical set of problems that you had to solve that get, got ladies into the title, but I also found it really uh, a meaningful flag as to how much social conditioning impacts all of us and the way that we think about advocating for ourselves in the workplace. So using salary negotiations as a starting point, talk to me about where you think some of that social socialization gets in our way when we start that process. I, I joke that part of what
1: I do is is therapy, uh, although I do remind people I'm not licensed, so you know <laughs> don't hold me responsible. Uh, and then the other part is logistical: what is the script? Literally, what do I say when they tell me no? But that part is easy. The harder part is exploring. Well, what might be holding you back? Why aren't you asking? Why are you afraid to ask? And that's where a couple of things come into play. First one is I'm afraid of maybe jeopardizing the relationship, right? Seeming like I'm not grateful for this. Uh, That then gets into, well, don't you realize that this is natural, right? Like they expect you to negotiate. Rarely does a company offer the first, you know, salary as, well, this is final, So if they expect you to negotiate, you're not going to jeopardize your relationship unless you ask in a rude way, right? So, you know, we do have to make sure we're being professional, we're being thoughtful, you know, we're showing some empathy, especially now during the pandemic. And yes, you can negotiate. The other part is, am I worthy of this? You know, have I done good enough work? And a lot of that comes down to imposter syndrome or perfectionism, right? We often are so much harder on ourselves than anybody else is. So as long as you've done due diligence before, digging into your accomplishments, and most importantly, realizing here's the impact on the business, the bottom line, can I quantify it? And then of course, you know, there is the going to actual therapy part.
0: (laughs) Okay. So there are a number of pieces here that I think are all so important that I want to give them each a little bit more airtime. So in talking about negotiating salaries, from the get-go, there can be two different norms where an organization is giving you, this is the offer, we don't expect you to negotiate, we're not gonna come back with more, or we do expect you to negotiate. But making those two things clear is really important and most companies don't make it clear. So it's up to us as the candidate to sort out the difference between the two, yes? Yes. I mean, if they tell you
1: that there's no room to negotiate, I'm going to challenge you and say there is, but it may not be more money. It might be something that's called full compensation. There are so many other things that you can negotiate for that cost either no money or a little bit of money. If they want you, they will pay you what you are asking for. And again, it doesn't necessarily have to be in dollars.
0: Okay, so in there, again, you have so much good information, Claire, I just wanna like keep unpacking it. So when you're talking about those other things that we can negotiate for, I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, I work in higher ed, I've always worked in higher ed. So I know that there are pay bans and I'm not gonna go beyond them. However, that's not the only thing that has value to me. I was a working mom for 18 years, a single mom. And so things that were really important to me were long before Zoom was even an idea, could I work remotely? Could I do it from Skype at the time? Could I have flexible hours so I could be at clarinet recitals and parent-teacher conferences? And so when I was negotiating with, uh, on salary, those were things like you said, they had no real expense to my direct supervisor, but it was kind of like, this is what I need to be successful. And I put it on the table from the get-go. Was I just lucky that I was heard well in the process or is that a strategy other people could employ? Both can exist.
1: You should employ it, you did everything right. And you were also lucky that you worked for a place that was receptive to it. I mean, again, I want everybody to remember it is expensive for them to lose you, whether or not you are a late stage candidate. If you are at a place where you even can negotiate, clearly they want you there. If they lose you as a candidate or if they lose you as an employee, it is going to take them time and money to replace you. So they are as equally invested in making this work as you are. So I want everybody to approach a negotiation really as a win-win. I mean, that, that's sort of the goal here. How do you come up with a creative solution to get you to a place where both people are happy? It is not you win, I lose. Remember that. Google full compensation, go to ladiesgetpaid.com. We have a whole class that will teach you what to look for flexibility, higher commission, start date, timetable for review, career development. I honestly think that's the best one. Get them to pay for the Ladies Get Paid book, <laughs> get them to pay for conferences, for classes. And you know why I love that? That is the win win because it is going to help you do your job better. You're going to contribute more at the company and you're going to use that to get your next job right? You're going to gain skills and meet new people that you can leverage to find whatever the next opportunity is. Here's the thing though, when you make this ask, first of all, prioritize it. You can't ask for everything. So already have in the back of your mind, you know, what are the one or two things that are most important to you? The next thing you need to do is really draw the correlation between what you're asking for and how it helps them. Mm -hmm. Always put yourself in their shoes. What would you want to hear? How would What's the compelling case that would get you to say yes? And if you anticipate all the reasons they won't say yes, then you can proactively address that.
0: So these are all, there's so much good advice in here, Claire. I think one of the things that you're bringing up is really important to remember throughout your job search process. You won't get to the point where you're being offered salary that you can then negotiate if you haven't already convinced them that they're interested in you. And along the way, you probably did that by showing them the value you bring to the company, not simply stating I deserve to be hired because I'm fabulous. It's really about how you're gonna help them accomplish their goals and why you're excited to do that. And that carries through the salary negotiation as well. Except the big difference here is this is the point where you're talking about your own worth which means you have to have a sense of your own worth. Both, as you said, there's that therapy part, emotionally, recognizing we are allowed to make money. We, are, we have inherent value. But also very specifically, um, now you're starting to throw numbers around and you may be asked in a, in a salary process, what are you looking for? How do we not sell ourselves short and not pick numbers so high that they're laughable?
1: This is the part that most people get afraid of, and it's actually the easiest part. You know why? It's market research. You will not be saying something random, okay? You're going to find that there's what's called a pay band, which is just a fancy word for a range. You're going to find a range. Your goal is to make the case why the top number is commensurate with your work as a top performer, okay? Now, here's a piece of controversial advice. I'm going to tell you to be the first one to throw out the number you want. A lot of other people are going to say, no, no, no. I want you to, you know, try to get them to say it first. That kind of feels like this awkward game of chicken. Uh, (laughs) and, And when you are the first one to say the number, you are anchoring high. You are taking command of the conversation. The ball is now in their court. Here's the thing, though. You're not going to say, here's the number I want buy. No, it is, here's the number I want. And here's the market research. I did go beyond the, I Googled, you know, what I found it on Glassdoor, because oftentimes they'll say, well, that's not relevant. You're going to talk about how you sought out real people who have had your job with the same context that you have. Okay. So it does need to be rooted in the, the size of the company, where it's located, uh, the special skills you have, if you have a higher degree. Okay. So, so again, this is not random. You say the number you want, and then you also say, "I'm sure we can figure this out together. Whatever the number is that works for you, we're gonna find. You know, we're gonna find a place that works for everybody. But this is the number that I found my research. I can talk to you about how my accomplishments back up my ask. Uh, but again, you're still gonna open up the conversation, right? So you you are assertive, but you also demonstrate. You know, listen. I know that this is a process. It might take a couple of rounds." I just think it's really important for women to not appear aggressive, you know, to the point earlier of, are you jeopardizing your relationship? If you ask, I say no, only because it's really not so much what you say, but as it is how you say it. And there is a thing called the double bind, right? And this is a reality for all women and particularly women of color, where if we appear as if we're acting outside of kind of the, the social norm of how we're expected to act right? Like we're accommodating, we're nice, the good girl. Well, if you come in and you assert your worth, you know, the chance that you might be perceived as aggressive, that is a real thing. And so am I saying, do not stand strong? No, I'm ladies get paid. Of course you say the number you want and you be assertive, but you have to use words like we, right? I'm excited to be here. You talk about the team's role in the work that you've done. Don't take yourself out of it, okay? So make sure you're still saying, I, you know, you did do this. Um, but it is something we need to be aware of. And so even just throwing it to them and saying, what do you think? What were you imagining? You know, invites them into the conversation. But at the end of the day, you need to know your bottom line and I would love you all to have backup options, other jobs you're interviewing for, side businesses. And, and honestly, the most important thing is, do you have a financial safety net? Because at the end of the day, the strongest negotiators are the ones who are able and willing to walk away, uh, which again, you know, this whole process is is a privilege. I I always want to mention that. That being said, you are doing yourself a disservice if you don't ask. You're hurting generational wealth in your family, okay? So it's not just about you and today's paycheck. And if you want to help contribute to the closing of the wage gap, you know, a part of it is taking command of this, right? At least close your own wage gap, and if all of us are doing it together, you know, we're contributing to it. That being said, is this on us, the underpaid and overexhausted? No, this needs to be a systemic effort, meaning better company policies and, of course, better policies for all women. Thank you, the government. I'm looking forward to you doing the right thing here.
0: So, Claire, when you were talking about that process of negotiating and putting salary out there, and you were talking about that double bind, There's um, research that um, tells us that if we advocate as women, on behalf of other people, we tend to be more effective. In fact, of everybody who can negotiate on behalf of others, women tend to be most effective negotiating for other people. It's like the mother bear thing. We can be ferocious in advocating and protect advocating for and protecting other people. We tend to get punished when we advocate for ourselves. So that creates an opportunity and a challenge then when we're negotiating. And I'd love you to help me, you know, polish off the rough edges here so one is that in the negotiation process um, and i'll give you an example from when i was doing it once when i explained that i'm the head of my household i have a responsibility to my daughter and to make sure that i'm making decisions that are going to impact the family well which is why i really need to be concerned about these dollars i felt a receptiveness that um fell into that category for me it wasn't like i want to live higher on the hog it was, I have responsibilities to take care of. But then at the same time, I also, um, and I was interviewing for a very senior role and I decided to pull back the curtain a little bit. And I said, you know, And this is similar to a story that Sheryl Sandberg told. Every day after this, I will be negotiating on behalf of the organization. This is the one day where it's my job to make sure I'm negotiating on my own behalf so that I can really be here and be prepared to be successful and thrive. I also found it was very well received when I did it. Have you seen approaches like that? Things that we can act, ways that we can present ourselves so that we can navigate these barriers and still be out there in a way that promotes the building of a strong relationship.
1: I think you made an excellent point here where you said, you know, this is an opportunity to negotiate for yourself, but you know that you will end up negotiating on behalf of the company. So I think I always look at negotiating as an opportunity to show to them how strong you're going to be when you are advocating on behalf of the organization, especially if you come well-researched, well-spoken, you're persuasive. Okay. So I want everybody to kind of, you know, maybe put yourself in the shoes of the company and say, this is me practicing for when it's time to do this for them. I've actually heard um, other stories that counter actually what you, what you said, um, where, Showing them that you're asking for something personal, your family, right? I mean, at the end of the day, this is just business. It's about numbers. What can they afford? What is the market fair? On the other side, I had a a conversation with a woman in my community yesterday who said uh, to her prospective employer, quite frankly, I have student loans. This is just not going to work for me. How about, and you know, whatever the higher number was. Here's the thing, though. She was ready to walk away. Because mm-hmm. it was a gamble to let them in into her into her life, so I can see it go both ways. I think it's just important to kind of read the room, or I guess now read the Zoom. And <laughs> if it feels like you are, you know, you have a rapport, which she felt, you know, and and the recruiter was being transparent with her, uh, they've gotten to know each other. So if that if it feels like that's the relationship, then absolutely. But you still have to have the number you're asking for, so that this doesn't feel like it's a favor right? Or, or charity or, you know, again, it's it's the market and what it will bear. It's a, a financial mathematical decision for them. Um, here's one thing I do want to mention is that um, when women don't get raises, a lot of times it's not because they asked and they were denied. It's because they didn't follow up. They just took it. They just said, okay, I guess it's a no. And they didn't realize, you know what? You have to have a comeback. And if you don't in the moment, you can say, all right, thank you. This is a major life decision. I need to think on it. Can I schedule another meeting? And then at that meeting, that's when you can come with market research and and yes, you know, a story if you need to tell about why you're asking for the money. But it, it really, at the end of the day, should be about the market and and fairness and so, and your value.
0: So in other words, whether you're negotiating your initial salary or you're asking for a raise. That market research anchors you internally and externally and demonstrates your value on the marketplace so that it's not driven by personal issues or things that your employer may not find relevant.
1: And also a lot of employers will tell you, you know, you're only getting a, a 5% or 10% bump on what you were paid before. Here's the issue. You may have been underpaid So just make sure before you accept that, that you've really done your market research. And also, if you've done some incredible things this year, and a great way to figure that out is, is to look at your original job description and now write a new one based on what you actually did you may find that there's an enormous scope change here right like maybe you took over the job of somebody else or or there was a new initiative right maybe you were the one to to be self motivated to create this new initiative that means you have gone so above and beyond your job today may bear little resemblance to what the original job was so do you deserve the standard percentage increase I would argue no, and you at least owe it to yourself to make that case, even if they've preemptively told you that this is what it is. I also really encourage everybody find out when the budgets are decided, you know, that's the time to be planting seeds to have open, honest conversations with your manager about, you know, how am I doing, am I on track for a raise, why or why not you know what do i need to show you because if you just wait until it's the annual review chances are you know the budget's decided and and maybe your manager you know their hands really are tied uh, and the <laughs> other thing i would mention is if they're not the decision maker which oftentimes they're not you just simply ask them what can i how can basically you help me help you. Okay. So what information can I give you that makes it easier for you to make the case talking points? Uh, you know, I, there was somebody in my community who made an entire PowerPoint presentation complete with footnotes that, that had her market research. I mean, she had quotes from people, you know, clients and and teammates that, you know, really said, here is how fantastic she was. So that was a great way of not saying I'm the best, right. Which might be perceived as, you know, outside of the norm for a woman to, to, you know, who's supposed to feel grateful or something. Uh, Well, it's, don't take my word for it, you know, take John's word for it. Uh, And again, especially if it's a client, that, that will make your case even more compelling.
0: Claire, we need to take a short break, but don't go anywhere. So glad you're all listening, excited for all we're going to talk about when we come back. Um, We're going to have more with Claire Wasserman about Ladies Get Paid. I'm Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 132. We'll be back in just a moment. We'll be back in just a moment. We'll be back in just a moment. So Claire, I want to um, go back to some of the parts of the book where you were talking about imposter syndrome, um, the challenges that we face in ourselves that get in the way of our really being able to take our career kind of like by the reins. And in it, as a core piece of it, you talked about the difference between perfectionism and seeking excellence. Talk to me a little bit about where you see that getting in women's way, and how do we navigate that kind of anxiety-driven pursuit of perfection with that really rigorous pursuit of excellence that's part of doing great work? Um, yeah,
1: a lot, lot to unpack here. Well, first, I want to define what perfectionism is and isn't, okay? So perfectionism is essentially the belief that anything less than flawless you know, is a failure, And then we take it one step further, which is, and now I'm the failure, okay? So this is not about trying to do our best, uh, you know, because we wanna do our best to grow and do well by the organization. No, it's the desire to do our best because we are afraid what will happen if we don't. And and the thing I find most fascinating and and what I think is maybe the hardest thing for, for women to let go of is that this is somehow our identity, right? That our accomplishments, our output, The perception of others, you know what, how they see us in our work—that that that is our value, right? And so, if things don't go well, and not just that, you know, let's say we perceive that something didn't go well, and nobody else notices, it doesn't matter, and it's a catastrophe, (laughs) and it's as if nothing else exists, even if we really actually did a lot of things great. It's this very, you know, it's an intense tunnel vision and a spiraling that happens. Of course, that gets in our way. Of course, it gets in our way. It means we're overworking we're exhausted burnt out we get paralyzed so then we procrastinate we, you know we focus endlessly on certain details that ultimately actually make things even harder for ourselves so there are a lot of consequences to this kind of feeling and i have to say in, in the work that i've done with ladies get paid and i you know there are 75,000 women in my community um, i think this is the most universal thing that they have I have to tell you,
0: whenever we talk about imposter syndrome, we're amazed at the response we get from our listeners. Never mind. All I have to do is go for a walk with my lady friends and everybody experiences it to some degree. And I want to probe it a little bit because um, you're connecting it to a way that we hurt ourselves, that we put energy into things that aren't fruitful. We torture ourselves in ways that we, A, don't deserve, but B, aren't going to get us anywhere. And that's very different than a dynamic that underrepresented groups experience all the time. Like we heard Sandra Day O'Connor very famously said she had to work twice as hard in order to make it to the Supreme Court. And I think it was Valerie Jarrett um, who said that black women are taught they have to work three times as hard to get the same opportunities as as some would joke, a mediocre white man. But there is a difference between the, the commitment to excellence, both because it's an internal drive and a, and a necessity, and imposter syndrome, which is where we don't feel worthy, that we don't feel capable, and that undermines kind of everything that we're doing. Yeah. I, I mean, one
1: of the women in my book and, and you know, the book is structured in a way where I profile real women and, and different professional challenges that they face. And, and then I give advice. One of the women named Reese, who who is a woman of color, when she started to track her imposter syndrome, right, really dig into the times where she stayed quiet at a meeting because she was afraid she'd be looked at as stupid or, you know, as she tracked it, she saw some patterns emerge and a big pattern was that, yes, she had imposter syndrome, but the company culture made it worse, that her boss and other colleagues made her feel small. And it wasn't until she realized, you know what, they actually were appropriating a lot of her, you know, the things that she had talked about. (laughs) Well, who's the imposter now? So, you know, so again, you know, I don't wanna say this is a fault of our own making, right? No. This is also put upon us, whether it's Mm -hmm. how we're socialized or how we're treated at work. Uh, But how we deal with it is the same, which is part, okay, internally, how do I maybe shift my mindset? And also, perhaps, I need to have a conversation with my boss, or I need to work towards changing the company culture to make it more inclusive. I mean, this is why I wrote 320 pages, uh, because there's a lot to say. This is not as simple as saying Uh, Just be more confident. I I actually think that's a detriment to women because it simplifies it too much.
0: Way too much. And it is complex and affects us in a number of ways. It's part of why I loved your section on managing our time. Um, I normally think about time management as how I'm going to get more done in a day.
1: I kind of laughed to myself here when you talked about, you know, to you, time management, meaning how can I get more done? And I think the way that I talk about time management in the book is how do I get less things done uh, and then, you know, and then be okay with it. So in other words, it's about priorities. Uh, and it's also about being proactive in knowing when your energy starts to get depleted and already having a plan in place, right? Right. Okay. Every four hours is when I notice that, you know, my brain starts to turn to mush. Okay. 10 minutes, I'm going to go walk outside. Like that is a plan that I already have time management. I mean, here, there's two things here. One, you could just have a lot to do. I mean, your boss might be expecting a lot of you. Okay. And then the other part is why am I adding so much to my plate? Again, is this because I don't believe I'm worthy if I don't do as many, you know, amazing things, you know, fear of, being mediocre. I mean, again, that's where the, the sort of the therapy part comes into play. Um, when with perfectionism, if your value is determined by your accomplishments, whether it's the number of accomplishments
0: or how stellar they are, well, then you're going to have trouble managing your time. Because Claire, it, um, there was an example that you gave in the book that I think was only partially facetious, but it did totally relate to something I do all the time, which is when I'm going down not the excellence road, but the perfectionist road, and I'm not keeping the difference clear. Um, I'll start to do things like worried like does the font and my on my deck match my suit like I have to match the logo that's on the screen and a kind of level of fussing over details that nobody else will ever see. And that those rabbit holes can be places of serious distraction from using our time for the things that actually can affect our careers. How can we pull ourselves back from those moments and also learn be more aware of what are the things that we should be putting our time to, times to, time towards that can make a meaningful difference. That is so funny that you
1: match what you wear to to the presentation that you, that you make because that is the story of the woman <laughs> in our perfectionism chapter. She was getting ready to give a, a talk at an industry conference, which by the way, she is a professional organizer, right? So she is hired to make people's homes and offices perfect. Uh, and she would spend hours you know, determining what she should wear and how that would be reflected on the presentation. And because of that, she kind of let her business go, right? So she lost sight of the bigger picture, both in terms of the presentation, but also other important things she needed to pay attention of. This is my biggest recommendation. Make a plan of everything you need to do, how long you think it's going to take and be realistic, You may think you're superwoman and, you know, things are going to go a lot faster and then you get disappointed and then angry, right? So, so be realistic, hold yourself accountable by having somebody else there to look at your work before it is done only because it will get you into the practice Mm -hmm. of not being perfect publicly and knowing that their input, their feedback is only going to make this better. Okay. So. That's my first recommendation. My second recommendation is to really see uh, the consequence, the negative consequence, this kind of behavior is doing for you, right? Is this making you so anxious that you're now lashing out at your partner or or your team? Are you, you know, taking extra Xanax? I mean, you know, like really sit down (laughs) and say, you know, what is this doing for me? And is this working for me? And then you may decide, you know what? It's not working for me. It's not worth it let this go. But the only way you're going to figure that out is by writing it down, slowing it down. This is how you get objective, basically get out of your head and, and, and make this an exercise for you. This is just about getting better and making progress. It's not about being perfect or making change immediately.
0: No, it's about growth. So another question in that category of taking command of what happens at work. You were talking before, and you write about this in the book. The irony of that when bro appropriation happens, um, you know the guys are taking credit for our ideas as if like they have they're making themselves imposters. Do they care about it? No. Um, but there's another place that's in that common list of things that happen to women at work, which is being asked to do the office housework, asked to clean up from the the meeting, get somebody coffee, plan the office birthday party. And you brought up a really interesting point in the book, which is why we tend to say yes in that moment. And the difference of what do we say yes to and what do we say no to based on the approval that we're seeking. Talk to me about how we should think about those moments and navigate them more effectively more effectively, so that we're looking for the approval that really matters in career success.
1: I also want to mention that um, managers oftentimes give what's called glamour work to, to men and that's work that's going to get them visibility. Uh, it's going to get them into meetings with clients and, and with folks of influence, whereas women, and particularly women of color, are given more of the the supportive work or the admin work. And that then makes it harder for them to make the case for why they should have a promotion. You know, quite frankly, it's not work uh, that, you know, it is a value, but not sort of valued as much. So I, I wanted to mention that because it's not just about planning the birthdays or, or bringing coffee or cleaning up meetings. It, it is also the kind of work beyond that. Uh, that can you know affect the case that we make when it's time for promotion. Um, it's a balance. again, double bind. You want to say no, but you can't just say no. You have to maybe say, I'm really focusing on and then tell them the project. Uh, or or you could even give a little context like, you know, I just read Ladies get paid, or, or I listened to this episode, and you know, I, I've seen statistics that show that women are more often asked to do these things. Uh, you know, I, I have to do, you know, I have to say, maybe not today, you know, and, and that would be, blame it on
0: us. Okay. Blame it on us. Uh, right. So and, in other words, you could bring, you could just, you know, say, sorry, don't have time. You could make a joke out of it. Um, also noted that, you know, there are people who have said, I've been, I'm an attorney on this case. I'm not here to provide housekeeping, um, that there are different ways to address it directly or indirectly, but you have to address it.
1: You do, you do, and uh, again, this is always contextualized with what's your relationship with the person asking you. What's you know, what's the company culture? Um, because I certainly don't want to tell women to just you know give a middle finger here uh, or just simply say no if that's not going to be received well. Uh, so there's def- different options, and the same thing with every piece of advice around career. There is not one person who knows it all as much as you know my 320 pages might position me as that person. This is just this is my advice and you will take what works for you. You will filter it through your own situation and the relationship you have with your, with your company.
0: Well, Claire, on one of those 320 pages, there was something that you said that I thought resonated. uh, I hope it resonates for others because it certainly resonated for me that, um, you kept talking about how can we be aware of what emotions are coming up in us at given moments so that we can manage them. And I love that in a moment like that, when somebody's asking you to do something, part of the conditioning that many women have to be ladies, to be good girls, is that we're helpful. That when people ask for something, we do what's asked of us. And to, if only to have the self-awareness of how uncomfortable that request is and pause for a moment to register. That makes me uncomfortable. It's inappropriate. And I'm either going to make a conscious, I'm going to make a conscious choice to either do it knowing why I'm doing it or to say no in a way that I'm going to control. But it starts with in that moment, flagging it to say, this isn't cool. And I think a lot of women have a lot, have a really hard time in that moment, remembering it's not okay. And that this is bigger than
1: them. This is not their problem or even necessarily the manager's problem. I mean, this is systemic. This is social. Uh, and so just stopping and saying, okay, this is valid. This is where I'm at. I'm not crazy. You know, don't just suck it up and get over it. That there are different things you can say to to push back. A- and just remember that when you push back, it is going to help you do your job better. You're going to resent the bless. You can focus on the things you need to focus on. Uh, and just you're, you're presenting this as here's why I'm setting a boundary. And it is because I'm focusing on other things that benefit the business. So, So don't be afraid to do it.
0: So you spoke earlier about how sometimes when we're, those kind of situations emerge, we also have to look at organizational culture. And sometimes we might look at organizational culture and say, you know what? The problem isn't me. The problem is the culture. I, can't, I want out of here. This isn't, I, I don't want to work here. I don't want to work in this kind of culture or environment. Um, yet for most of us, we can't just quit. Because we don't like where we are, we've got to figure out a way to stay there while um, finding a way to go find a happier, healthier place to work. What do you recommend, particularly in this time of COVID, where we're not going to um, that interesting lecture at the library, we're not going to the corporate meet and greet, we're not going to that national conference. How can we start networking when our world is entirely online?
1: I think I think it's better for networking now, um, and, and this is coming from somebody whose core business used to be in-person networking events. Um, so you know, listen, I you know I host uh, weekly lunches. Um, we've seen over seven thousand women register for them. Uh, usually about two hundred folks. Um, come to them, there's the chat function. So you can talk to way more people than you ever could if it was in person. You also can do it in your pajamas if you want. You know, if you're an introvert, well, you don't have to be nervous anymore. I think everybody should remember that we're all trying to improve ourselves. We all want to get paid what we're worth. We're always looking for work at some point. Networking is how you do it. So if you connect with somebody for networking, they want to connect with you too. Uh, so, so just, you know, the mindset shift needs to happen. I don't want folks to use, you know, COVID as, as an excuse to not network. I also think people are more generous with, with their time, as much as we have limited time. Uh, they, they know that this, this is a time when we're all feeling pretty vulnerable. Um, and so I have tactics in the book of, you know, how to be strategic and what to say. But again, in terms of, of mindset, I, I actually think this is
0: a really good time to network. So one of the things you noted in the book, once again, all those feel all the stuff about the feelings, it so affected me, Claire, was that we go in and our two biggest fears are that they might not like us. And if we ask for something, they're going to say no. What can we do to move past those two fears? Like, how, have you ever been afraid? You're delightful, gorgeous, smart. Were you ever afraid of walking in and not being liked or not being received well? That's my entire life. I, I mean, I, which by the way,
1: I mean, as one gets more successful, that does not mean you have any less imposter syndrome or, or any more self-esteem. I mean, in fact, the disconnect could be so large that you start to feel even worse. Like, you know, how could I be, you know, write a book and still not feel like an author? Essentially, as I wrote this book, it was a very meta experience because, you know, here's a good example i couldn't finish the perfectionism chapter and so i'm complaining about it to my therapist and she said oh claire because you don't know how to reconcile your own perfectionism so it's sort of like <laughs> until you do that for yourself you will never be able to finish this 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 book and and i want a few people to remember because this stuff is systemic because it is how we are socialized do not have the expectation that quote i will get over this no The goal is to learn how to deal with it better. The goal is to beat yourself up, not for a day, but for maybe five minutes. So I always say designate dwell time, designate Mm -hmm. time, maybe five, 10, 15 minutes, literally with a timer where you can go and feel like crap about yourself (laughs) or about somebody (laughs) else or the situation. And then you say, okay, the timer has gone off. I have shit to do. And, and then you you get back to it, you know, because feelings are like a bouncing ball on the top of a pool. And if you keep pushing them down and you keep trying to ignore them, guess what's going to happen? They're going to pop back. Just say my goal here is to, is to figure out how I can let this be in my life, but in a way that isn't holding me back. And I promise it does get better. But as you raise the stakes in your life, you know, as you set your, your goals higher, uh, there might be more of a chance of failure. Right. And so again, it's not about, I won't feel like this. It's how can I just at least be okay and get my work done. And maybe, you know, again, the buzzer goes off and you get back to work.
0: I love it. It's um, We call them the rumination breaks where you just, you know, if that thing, whatever that thing is that's haunting you, whether it happened in yesterday's meaning or 10 years ago, you know, let it come up, give it a name and then put it back on the shelf because you're not going to change it right now and go on to things that you can affect. You've honored it. You devoted a few minutes, but put your energy where you can be productive
1: something I, I always share with people about this book and as I was writing it and the intense perfectionism that basically paralyzed me <laughs> three months in the beginning, a game changer was writing on a post-it note uh, in black Sharpie. I said, write like crap. And I put it on my laptop and, and basically it said to me, just write. Like the whole goal here is to get it out because the, the perfection, which is not going to happen anyway, but the kind of magic is in the editing process. It is in the a 100th draft. Uh, and so saying that, you know, it gave me freedom. But the takeaway I want everybody to, to, to have from this is it was something tangible and visual that I looked at every day, because I knew that dealing with my perfectionism would be ongoing. Uh, and I couldn't wait for it to paralyze me. I had to, again, be proactive in, in making sure that it was kind of banished to to its, into a corner. Um, and also seeing it reminded me that, you know, listen, I was working on it. And it was hard. Right.
0: And so it's a way of dealing with it, but not letting it get in your way. So I want to end by getting a little advice from you. Like, as you said, networking in an online world can be really, really rewarding and fruitful. And another chapter, part of the book that I really appreciated was on the etiquette of making connections. And that's a place where it's not just about the connections where we, we need to advance in our career, but a way that we can help others. So what tips would you give us if we're looking to A, reach some new people, but also for those of us who wanna you know, extend the ladder down and help connect up and coming people so that they can have a few more opportunities.
1: A lot of people are looking for mentors and I always say, well, start by being a mentor. Uh, so uh, here's my recommendation. Go and export your LinkedIn. Go and turn your, your phone and your email Rolodex inside out. Start organizing it uh, because some, some you know, really strategic way to expand your network is actually by connecting others. And you already want to know who do I have in my network and what do they do? Okay. And that is something of value you can provide another person. And that makes you, you know, helpful to them. They're going to want to help you, right? It's this, this reciprocity. And as you connect others, you're in a sense, you know, creating a kind of boomerang effect, right? Or this sort of invisible spider web where then all of a sudden an opportunity comes up and everybody remembers because you've, again, used your social capital to help others. And again, they, they remember it. Um, so, you know, there's an etiquette here. I mean, you have to ask permission of both sides. You have to be clear about why you're connecting them. It's not just you both do similar things. I thought you would like each other you know, really dig in and say, well, are there speaking opportunities or Claire's writing a book and maybe you'll like to read it. And, you know, just again, think strategically about why they should know each other, because at the end of the day, it's about respecting everybody's time. Even asking for somebody, you know, can you get on a call? Can I pick your brain? Well, that's way too abstract. So it's something very specific. You want to ask them, give them an out just 20 minutes of your time, or we could do this by email, I'm happy to reach out again right so you know again demonstrating that you know their value you respect their time and and also you know demonstrating your own value which yes you can connect them to others but sometimes simply asking
0: how can I support you that's good enough so Claire we are unfortunately running out of time so here's my question how can I support you and the people who want to find you
1: Love this! Yes, ladiesgetpaid.com. Join us. We have a, you know a private Slack group where women are giving each other advice and and uh, job opportunities. You can find me on Instagram. It's Claire Gets Paid. Ladies Get Paid is also on Instagram. And of course, the book. That's that's a great way to you know get <laughs> me paid. So ladiesgetpaid.com/slash/book. You can Google it. It is on sale wherever books and Kindles and audio. Uh, you know, and if my voice hasn't bothered you too much, I did do the reading of the book. So I think that's also a great way to
0: to feel inspired. Claire, thank you so much, A, for joining us today, but for the amazing work that you're doing. On behalf of everyone, we're so grateful. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you all for listening. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at our handle at SXM Business and me at Laura's Arrow. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern. Full catalog of past shows available wherever you get your podcasts. Search on Laura's Arrow and Women at Work to find us. Many thanks, as always, to our amazing producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Chris Tukes i'm laura zaro and you've been listening to women at work on sirius xm's business radio powered by the wharton school have a great week everyone